let's just take oil. It's about drilling a hole in the ground. No question about it, you have an oil well. But lots of things happen in and around that oil well. Someone owns the land on which that oil well is located. Some set of actors own the oil. In Nigeria and Angola and Russia, it's typically owned by a combination of companies and the government. And then there are all sorts of other actors that are involved. Companies that work in what are called the oil services sector. They build pipelines and flow stations. And then, of course, you have all manner of community organizations and local leaders that are vested in the impact of this oil and gas industry. I've referred to all of those things, including, for example, some of these militant groups. They're part of it because if you blow up a pipeline, one thing you could be damn sure about is that that will have an impact on world oil markets and prices. So I've called all of that stuff an assemblage. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode I talk to Michael Watts, class of 63 and Chancellor's Professor of Geography and Co-Director of Development Studies at the University of California, Berkeley, where he taught for 40 years. He has served as the Director of the Institute of International Studies at Berkeley, from 1994 to 2004 and was director of Social Science Matrix 2019 to 2020. He was educated at the University College London and the University of Michigan and has held visiting appointments at the Smithsonian Institution and at universities in Bergen, Bologna and London. During the academic year of 2021-2022, he has been a senior Global Horizons Fellow here at SCAS, and since the beginning of 2022, he also serves as a non-resident long-term fellow for programs on the political economy of development and development policy at SCAS. While in residence, we used the opportunity to meet and record this podcast episode. Michael Watt's writing has addressed a number of development issues, especially food security, political violence, and the agrarian question in Africa, South Asia and Vietnam, and the political economy of development more generally. He has worked for UNTB, OECD and other development organizations. He has published over 15 books and 300 articles and has worked extensively with the renowned photographer Ed Kashi. Recently, Watts has written extensively on the oil industry, extractive economies, and international commodity trading firms. The oil industry in Nigeria and related aspects is also what we will focus on in this episode. And this is the second episode in our theme, Developmental Issues and Human Rights. Very welcome to SCAS Talks. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? First of all, Natalie, thank you very much for inviting me along and the opportunity to speak to you. I'm a geographer by training, as you mentioned, and for most of my professional career, I've been at the University of California at Berkeley. I'm part of what's called an Earth Sciences program, which encompasses environmental studies, climate sciences, and uh, geography. I'm English by birth. I was born in a very small village in the southwest of England, just over 20 people. And uh, it was a wonderful place uh, as a child, of course, to grow up. My parents uh, both left school when they were about 14. My father served in the Second World War, actually. In fact, I was just reminded recently that the big battle cruiser that he was on in the Second World War was in Tokyo Harbor when the Japanese emperor surrendered. We lived in a small village, as I mentioned, and so my experience and background of that life was really, from the get-go, wrapped up with agriculture. We had a large orchard, a garden. When I was young, I wanted to be a, a farmer. And so that whole life, really, when I was young, uh, got me sort of interested, I suppose, in some way that I didn't know at the time in these sorts of issues. That's very interesting to hear. Fascinating background. 
So very broadly, what is your research topic about? Well, as I just mentioned, my background was rural. Uh, we lived in a small village and I had an interest in those sorts of issues. And I took those in some way with me when I became an undergraduate in London, University College London, in the late 1960s. Now, as you know, the 1960s were a period of unrest, turmoil, student activism of various sorts, and I was certainly drawn into that. And I think there were two things about my time in London which shaped why it was that I ended up working for most of my life in parts of the global south and in Africa in particular. One was, and I, I think you'll probably remember this, people of your generation in Sweden, in the late 1960s, in Nigeria, there was a terrible civil war, the Biafran War. It broke out in 1967. It lasted through 1970. By some estimations, two million people died. A part of Nigeria, the East, seceded from the Federation. And, of course, the federal government, Nigerian government, launched a war. And in that war, different countries, France supported Biafra, United Kingdom supported the federal government. It was a humanitarian crisis of a particular sort. Some people have said it was the first televised humanitarian crisis. I remember this vividly. Even my parents would talk about these terrible images they saw on TV of small African children starving. And on the front pages of all the major newspapers, the Biafran War. I remember one said, the land of no hope. So this, frankly, had a huge impact on me, and I took a couple of courses about Africa. I had no background in this area, absolutely. So that was one thing that shaped me a lot. The second was at that time, and this comes back to the 1960s, there was a lot of interest in student movements in what was seen to be this sort of political potential the emancipatory potential of things that were happening in the global south, what we then called the third world. And this had to do with China, it had to do with all manner of things. And that also had a big impact on me. Of course, this was also the time of the Vietnam War, another foundational set of events. And so all of these things, both of those things, sort of pushed me in London toward a particular interest in Africa. And I had the opportunity, after I graduated, to do volunteer work. I was originally intending to go to India, but that didn't work out. So I ended up, by chance, in Nigeria. And I was working in remote rural areas. I picked up a local language, which was fantastic. I learned an enormous amount. I was ignorant just about everything. But, and this comes to the, your question about my interests, that explains my long-standing interest in Nigeria, that part of the world. But it just so happened when I was there, was a period of terrible drought that extended across West Africa in the so-called Sahel area. And the areas that I was working were subject to that drought, and there was an enormous amount of impoverishment and indeed a famine, the Great Sahel Famine, it's usually referred to. And that got me interested, and that brought me back to graduate school for one reason, because when I was there, people were in refugee camps, and people were in terrible shape, uh, nutritionally, physiologically. But there was never an absolute shortage of food. I always found food in even remote rural markets. The issue was people couldn't afford it. And that paradox, why was that? The people that produced were the people that starved, and there was never an absolute shortage of food. Those two things I, I couldn't figure out, and that brought me back graduate school, and you mentioned in the University of Michigan, and that began that part of my research interests. And they've been very focused on Nigeria, although I've worked and lived in South Asia and India. I've worked in other parts of the world, Vietnam, but Nigeria has been a central place for me. So when I began, as I said, I was very interested in it, food issues and famines and subsistence crisis and agriculture and how agricultural productivity could be improved, all of that. And that was largely in the Muslim north of the country. You'd mentioned my interest in oil over the last 20 years. I've been interested in a very different part of the country, and that is in the southeast, where, in fact, this Biafran war was. 
Nigeria is a major oil producer. That's where the oil fields are. And I began to be very interested in the consequences and impact of that oil industry, obviously in that area, but in Nigeria more generally. And those sorts of interests, they're not the only ones, but have been central to my intellectual scholarly concerns. Interesting how everything comes together. Yeah, of course. The way that I've told it was as if I planned this. But you know as well as I do that, in fact, most of life is serendipity. I uh, had every intention of going to India. The last moment I couldn't go because of a conflict between Pakistan and, and India. And so I cobbled something together. And it just so happened that when I was there, as I mentioned, were these series of climatic events and hardship and famine and so on. So these were just, yeah, there was serendipity in a way. But it launched me in a way on this path. And on the one hand, I owe, in some sense, much of my career and my life trajectory to Nigeria and the Nigerians that I've worked with and the communities that were so generous to me and so on and so forth. It's been a central part of my life and I've been going back ever since and we may have a chance to talk about this and immediately prior to COVID anyway, I was part of an oil commission that was established by uh, actually a, a church group in the United Kingdom in conjunction with the Nigerian government to look precisely at the long-term impact of the oil industry and whether and how reparations were due to these communities that had been really devastated by the footprint, ecological, social, political, of the oil and gas industry. If you sit down for lunch, for example, here at SCAS or with somebody you don't know yet so well, and they say, so what is your research about? How would you, what would you say in like a very short amount of time? Yes, that's a good question. I mean, I suppose one place to begin would be something that you mentioned, that I'm here at SCAS as a global fellow interested in questions of governance and development. So in the broadest sense, all of my work, it's had different foci, sometimes agriculture, food, sometimes religion, politics, oil, has been on a multiplicity of issues in the global south, Africa in particular. And I suppose central to that has been governance with respect to resources, could be forests, could be oil and gas, a hugely significant resource, obviously. Could be agricultural resources based on the land. And who has access to them and how and who does not, who is included, who is excluded. And how are these resources governed? And governed here, obviously, by government, but in the oil and gas industry, oil companies play a major role in that governance, as do civil society groups, advocacy groups. So it's in that mix of things, if you like, around broadly construed development, government, resources, that I feel like most of my work has been located. And you mentioned conflict, it's true. We'll later in this discussion, I'm sure, get to the conflicts in and around the oil and gas industry. If communities feel like they've been exploited and rolled over by the oil industry and the government, that can generate grievances and resentments. And what we've seen in Nigeria, and not only Nigeria, is that sometimes those grievances get channeled into militant groups and sometimes armed groups. And that's where the conflict comes in. But all of this is part then, if you like, because conflicts could be seen as a breakdown of governance. So all of this is part and parcel of that set of issues. That's, as we say, my wheelhouse. My wheelhouse is development and governance. Yeah, one of my favorite words to use is ecosystem. You get the impression that you have this ecosystem of, as you mentioned, the oil companies and everything around it, where everybody plays, plays a part. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's key to how I think more generally. And it's important for me in a couple of ways. Let's just take oil. It's about drilling a hole in the ground. No question about it. You have an oil well. But lots of things happen in and around that oil well. Someone owns the land on which that oil well is located. Some set of actors own the oil. In Nigeria and Angola and Russia, it's typically owned by a combination of companies and the government. And then there are all sorts of other actors that are involved. Companies that work in what are called the oil services sector. They build pipelines and flow stations. And then, of course, you have all manner of community organizations and local leaders that are 
vested in the impact of this oil and gas industry. I've referred to all of those things, including, for example, some of these militant groups. They're part of it because if you blow up a pipeline, one thing you could be damn sure about is that that will have an impact on world oil markets and prices. So I've called all of that stuff, ecosystem as you say, I've called it an assemblage. It means two things. You have to see how these parts intersect in complicated ways in Nigeria or Angola or other oil-producing countries. United States is no different. And this bears upon my being here at SCAS. You have to do that almost by definition in an interdisciplinary way. Of course, it's about economics. Of course, it's about politics. Of course, it's about the environment. Of course, it's about social relations and culture. There's no way that you can understand that assemblage or take it apart or understand how it operates unless you think that way. Makes perfect sense. A couple of years ago now, you published the book Black Gold together with the photographer Ed Kashi. I had a closer look at this book before the recording, but can you give our listeners a little bit more of a background to this project? Yes, I will. First of all, another case of serendipity. I had not thought about working with a photographer, although I'm a bad but very excitable amateur photographer. So I love images. I love that image world. I love photography. The serendipity was my son, his best friend, in primary school was Ed Cashy's son. And we got to know one another, and Ed is a internationally known photographer. He's published books. He did a wonderful book on the Kurdish problem with a brilliant writer called Christopher Hitchens. He's written a wonderful book with images about aging and the challenges of aging in America. So we met. We got along extremely well. And he would identify as a photo documentarian. He likes to address images and produce images that are engaged with real-world problems. And he's worked all over the world in that regard. And so we got talking and I said, well, you know, a long time I've been working in Nigeria and oil and gas. And this was at a time when, in fact, finally, climate change, the oil companies, carbon emissions, all of this had a global currency and import. Also, Ed works in a particular way. He likes to work almost like an anthropologist, Natalie. He doesn't parachute in for two days, take some pictures and then leave. He loves to work and immerse himself in the place. And so we were talking, I explained to him that I've been working for a long time on the oil and gas industry and its impact in Nigeria in particular. And by way of context, Nigeria is a major oil producer. It produces very high quality oil and is a huge producer of natural gas. It's a member of OPEC. The head of OPEC is currently a Nigerian. Until recently, it was producing a couple of million barrels a day. So it's a major player globally. And at one point, a significant proportion of high-quality oil imports to the United States came from Nigeria. When you filled up your car in San Francisco, where I lived, the chances was a good chance that it came from Nigeria. So that was the context. And I talked to Ed about this, and he said, well, why don't I come with you when you next go to Nigeria? And out of that then came this book. And a part of it was related to the fact, and this is the sort of second point that I'd say, is that I was increasingly frustrated about the fact that whilst I, as you gently inferred, have written a lot, it's for an academic and scholarly audience. And I felt that these issues were so pressing that it would be great to try another. And so that's how the book emerged. And Ed came with me on a number of quite long visits to the region. And we literally traveled around together. Out of that came the book, and my role from the beginning, I felt, was as a curator. Ed provided the images, and what I did was to say, okay, let's not just produce a coffee table picture book. And you've seen some of those images, and I hope listeners will check out Ed's website and the book. They're extremely powerful images on many, many levels. But I wanted to curate it in a particular way. And it seemed to me it was important to somehow link image and text in a particular way. And if you look at the book, it's an unusual book in the following sense. There will be images, powerful images, but 
on the page or next to the page, there might be a poem by a Nigerian poet from the region. Or there might be a photograph of a sculpture by a Nigerian artist. And populated across the book are a series of short contributions by activists, advocacy groups, politicians. We even have a long interview with a militant, someone who'd taken up an armed struggle against the oil companies. I'm sure some of your listeners will be familiar with the brilliant Nigerian novelist Chimamanda Adichie. She wrote a wonderful little essay. So it's a very interesting type of document that is not just pictures. It has an explicitly political content. And I hope the way that it was curated enhances the power of those, of those images. And let me just say one last thing. The idea here was, of course, to produce something that could be available relatively cheaply in and outside of Nigeria. But we had the idea of making a traveling roadshow. Ed's images, some short videos, and take them to university campuses, which we did, but also to communities in the U.S. that also had felt the imprint of oil and gas. I live in the Bay Area. People don't, I live in San Francisco. People don't think of the oil and gas industry. Actually, Chevron, the big transnational oil company, is located in the Bay Area, and in the north of the Bay is a big petrochemical installation where many of the problems these, in this case, largely African-American communities face are very similar. So we could take it there, or to the U.S. South in Louisiana, a huge petrochemical zone that's been associated with major health problems, cancers and what have you. So the idea would be, I hope, a book that people would look at and be interested in and hopefully be prepared to change their views on certain sorts of things, but also to make it mobile, let's put it that way. And we did that, I think, with some, some degree of success. This is audio. We can't show pictures. But what we can do is to listen to an audio clip. And I found a short documentary on YouTube, which is called Curse of the Black Gold. And it's based on your book that you have done together with Ed Kashi. And this short clip is produced by the award-winning filmmaker Julie Winnekerl. That's Ed's wife, incidentally, partner. Good to know. I think we listen to part of this and then take it from there. We have enough wealth. How many thousand barrels of oil are this siphoning from our land every day? And how much is coming to us? Nothing. The oil companies themselves are not willing to come and sit down. At this moment, they make fantastic profit that nobody, nobody knows about. They produce the oil, they report to government, they sell the oil, and government sits down in Abuja only to receive the profit. A lot of the money that is being generated from the oil revenue is being shared by people who are in power and their cohorts. At the moment, there is too much of official corruption that is going on. If the government cannot even address matters as basic as water to drink, sanitation, public education, then of course it's difficult. No water, no light, no road, People are dying every day because of oil exploration. If the Niger Delta people have been denied their rights to property, no Niger Delta person can lay claim that that piece of land given to him by his ancestors is his as of right. Because the government had put in place a decree that says that property, that land, that forest, that river, no longer belongs to the person because they want to take control of oil and gas. So we're hearing a lot of voices here in this clip representing different agencies. But what we hear is the description of some of the effects and impacts of the oil industry in Nigeria. And we hear things like big profits, exploitation of the people, people are dying every day corruption, lack of clean water and sanitation, and so on. Would you like to elaborate a little bit on what we have just heard? That was a wonderful choice of clips, actually, Natalie, because it seems to me in that short minute raises, for me, everything that's central to the book 
that we wrote, but also to how we think about not just Nigeria, incidentally, but I would say you can pick an oil producer anywhere, Russia. We're in the midst of a geopolitical crisis that involves Russia right now, but Angola, Ecuador, Colombia, the Caucasus, Saudi Arabia. I would argue that these are all like Nigeria. Most are members of OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, big, powerful organization. All of these countries experience some version of what we just heard in those voices. So let me just speak concretely about some of the things that were raised there because I think they're central. One is oil wealth. One could argue that oil has been and remains actually one of the most important the most global, and the most strategic of resources. God willing, we will transition as soon as we can away from fossil fuels and carbon emissions that are destroying our planet. But historically, oil and gas has been central to what we could call our petroleum-based civilization. You may have to import oil, you may have it under your territory, but either way, no one would suggest anything other than what I've just said. Nigeria, like other oil producers, has a lot of it, and it has even more, incidentally, gas than it has oil. That wealth, and you heard the voices saying, this oil wealth, where is it going? Where does it end up? Well, first of all, let's start with the fact there's a lot of it. Nigeria became a major oil producer roughly at independence. It was a British colony until 1960. Since 1960, the amount of oil wealth that has flown into the country, and don't forget, Nigeria is a poor country. Its per capita income, you know, is about $1,000 per person. It's a lower middle income country, it would be classified. Nigeria, since 1960, has captured the government over $1 trillion of oil revenues. As one of the voices said, by some estimations, World Bank actually, estimates that three to four hundred billion dollars of that is, quote, unaccountable, unquote. That means it's been corrupted, stolen, taken, it can't be traced. I'll come back to that in just a second. But the point is then that oil wealth is central to Nigeria. It accounts for currently 90% of all of Nigerian exports, and at any one time, probably 80 to 85% of government revenues. That's what that oil revenue does. So, first point then is oil is central. Nigeria is sometimes called an oil state, a petro state. So the question is then, well, and all the voices you heard, and incidentally some of the voices were some of the most important actors in Nigeria over this issue, Patterson Ogon and Arontu Douglas and so on. The question then becomes, well, if the government is capturing all of this wealth, how does it do it? And where does the money end up? Those are just two very basic central questions. Aronto Douglas just said, well, let me tell you how that happens. The government says we're going to nationalize all land and specifically all mineral subsurface mineral rights are government owned. That's common in oil-producing states. Then you set up a national oil company. In Nigeria, it's called the NNPC, the National Nigerian Petroleum Company. And they work with big oil, Chevron, Exxon, etc. Because typically national oil companies don't have the technological capability of producing large amounts of oil and gas. And then, in the case of Nigeria... A memorandum of understanding is designed by government which determines how much of the value of every barrel of oil is taken by oil company and how much by the government. And currently that's about 75% is taken by the government and 25% is taken by the oil company. doesn't mean that the oil companies aren't making huge profits. They most certainly are. Currently, as you know, oil prices are back up to very high levels. I checked this morning, $110 a barrel. So my point is then that a set of what Aronto was saying is if you want to understand how the wealth is captured by whom, you've got to understand that process. And it means that that money flows into the government exchequer. And there's a lot of it. Now, the next question was raised by Patterson Ogon in the clip. Well, where does it go? 
And why is it that the people that we heard, a couple of the villagers, are so pissed off? We don't have light. We have the oil. It's under our land, but we have no water. Our basic needs are not being met. And on top of all of that, we have the consequences of oil spills and dredging and what is called gas flaring. Gas that is released during the process of oil production is burned. And that not only produces huge carbon emissions, but terrible health consequences locally. So the second question then becomes, well, when that oil wealth is captured, where does it go? You could say, well, this is a fantastic thing because this could launch a big development campaign by a government. It could build roads and railways and electrification. It could stimulate the economy. But typically in oil producing states, and Nigeria is no exception, that's not what happens. Well, what happens? Well, again, one of the voices said, well, actually, these elites, the political class, that includes, incidentally, well-placed military, well-placed politicians, they get their hands on this, typically by getting contracts, which are often inflated in order to do whatever it is that they do. And a lot of money is simply outright stolen. So that's another part of it. And then finally, there's the question that everyone said, well, what is the consequence of all of this for the people on the oil fields? And let me just say that the area we're talking about is called the Niger Delta. It's one of the most beautiful, ecologically diverse, tropical rainforest areas you could possibly imagine. A center of biodiversity. It's extraordinary. That's where the oil and gas is. And so the third question that was raised in those voices is, well, how does this show up on our doorstep as villagers? And you'll see a bunch of photographs in the book and on the website trying to depict that. Oil pipelines running through the center of villages, many of which are old and leak oil. The consequences of clearing forest or of oil spills or of gas flaring. These communities, and they're called host oil communities, those communities then, on the one hand, have all of the costs I've just described, but as they were all saying, none of the benefits. We still don't have running water. We still don't have electrification. And that phenomena of why you have enormous wealth on the one side and yet poverty on the other is often called the paradox of plenty. Why is it that resource-rich countries, not only oil producers, but mineral producers, coltan and tin and copper producers in Congo, why do you have that paradox? And of course, it turns on political questions. The wealth is captured by certain sorts of interests, and whether it either stimulates the economy or whether it returns to the places and communities that produce this stuff, the Niger Delta in this case, that's an area of 20, 25 million people. It covers nine states of the 36-state federation. Whether they benefit at all and how is a central question for understanding how the oil sector is perceived and responded to by these communities that we heard these powerful voices speaking to. As, as it is often on this podcast, that it's a complex problem. <laughs> it is. Of course it is. And I've talked as if the oil companies are solely culpable. There's no question that they are. But equally culpable is the government. And one of the famous activists from the Delta, which some of your listeners may remember, a, a lawyer and human rights activist called Ken Sarowiwa, he was murdered by the military government in the mid-1990s. He talked about a slick alliance a slick alliance between government and the oil companies. The government captured the oil wealth and could distribute it to powerful political constituencies. And in turn, to keep the oil flowing, they could, as it were, turn a blind eye to how the companies acted, whether or not they were environmentally responsible or not. And often, in fact, the oil companies, if there were local problems, because people were peeved and upset about the impact of the industry, often they would 
they, the oil companies, would invite in and make use of the Nigerian military to repress any local dissent or opposition or raised voices. This was exactly what Ken Sarawiwa referred to as the slick alliance. They're in bed together, so to say. And it produces all manner of, if you like, bad things, not just an environmental footprint, but lots of political, social, economic resentment, and a system that's, um, if you like, a government, rather, that's less predicated on improving the lives of its citizens. By some estimations, incidentally, a relatively recent one by the International Monetary Fund, a multilateral development institution, said that all this oil money, this trillion dollars I've just talked about, has, in their conclusion, probably not improved the average standard of living of the average Nigerian. What a colossal failure that amounts to. And so again, it's this slick alliance and the politics around that, that in some sense then has, of course, held Nigeria together. We began this conversation with the civil war. Well, in the wake of the civil war after 1970, when oil became so important, it held a type of conflicted country together, but at a political cost, of course. Certain powerful constituencies benefited from it. But remote oil-producing communities, just to mention one, did not. And you can play that game for a while, but at some point it will come back and bite you. And again, coming back to the book, that's what we talk a little bit about with the emergence of serious conflicts. The 1990s, there were non-violent protests. I mentioned Ken Sarawiwa. He was a follower of Gandhi. Non-violent protests against the impact of the oil industry. But at a certain point when things didn't begin to change, it's perhaps no surprise that young men, angry, no prospect of improving their lives, suddenly begin to turn to other means, militancy. And in 2005, this exploded with the emergence of a group that no one had heard of called the Movement for the Emancipation of the Niger Delta, MEND is the acronym, that said, this has got to stop, unless you do the following sorts of things, which involve making sure that money comes back to the old producing communities and so on, changing the corrupt system. Unless these things happen, and they were legal and constitutional changes that they were demanding, we will close down the oil industry. That's exactly what they did. In the wake of 2005, they essentially, to use the language of the oil industry, oil was shut in. There were many, many attacks on oil platforms and infrastructure. And obviously what that meant, you can imagine, was oil prices globally began to go through the roof. Secondly, the government began to realize that their oil revenues, you know, the economy is a one-horse town, as we say. It's just oil began to disappear. So, of course, they launched a big counterinsurgency in the region to try to quell this dissent. So we had, from 2006 to 2009, an insurgency. That's what we had. It was terrible. And ultimately, an amnesty was struck in 2009 because it was clear that, to both sides, that this couldn't continue. Well, I just What I want to illustrate here is this system that we heard these voices describing... Where does the oil wealth go? How is the oil wealth captured? Who benefits? That system, in the way that it developed in Nigeria, and not unlike other parts of the world too, can stagger on for a while, but ultimately it will explode. And that's what we had in 2005-06 to 2009. The voices that you heard were happening prior to, immediately prior to, the emergence of this MEND group. But you can see from the ways that people were talking, there was a real anger. And this had been going on since 1960. And bear in mind, this was not just five years. This is 40 plus years of oil production and of these communities being ignored, trampled, seeing no benefits, kids not being educated, communities with no electricity, some of the poorest standards of living one can imagine. And there was a report produced, which incidentally, interestingly for Sweden, was a Nobel Prize winner report that was released in 2005, 
that confirmed what a lot of people knew, that this extraordinary area I described to you, the Niger Delta, center of biodiversity, was one of, and I'm quoting them, one of the most polluted places on the face of the earth. You can see when I describe this why Ed and I felt making a book of this sort was pressing. These were pressing issues. And they're not just confined to Nigeria. I could give you a Russian-type story, an Angola-type story, a Saudi Arabia-type story, very different cultures, etc., etc., but some version of this you will find. What can be done about this? I mean, how can you disrupt the system or improve it? Or is there something you can do at all? Well, that's a great question. It's a big one, of course, and it operates on many levels, as you might imagine. One is within Nigeria itself. What can be done in the light of these conflicts and these struggles that have been going on to ensure, first of all, that what has happened does not continue? The environmental despoliation doesn't happen. That there are benefits of some form that the communities receive. And I had mentioned that myself and a group of other people were appointed to an oil commission. The report will be released later this year. And it speaks to this question. Because the oil commission, which was presided by an extraordinarily charismatic man of the church, John Sintamo, he's just stepped down, but he was the Archbishop of York, Extraordinary man, British, Ugandan, born and uh, raised in Uganda, tortured by the government and fled. Extraordinary life. And he has led the charge on this and to say, well, look, we now have something called global climate change. And this industry that happens to be the backbone of the Nigerian economy is central to the problems that emerge from carbon emissions. And what that would imply, incidentally, is that... Hopefully, if we meet the UN standards, that is to say, to get to carbon net zero by 2050, what that means is oil and gas consumption will have to be decreased by 45%. Well, what will that mean for an oil producer like Nigeria? So coming back to this oil commission and, and Johnson Tamu, he said, well, look, There's a series of important issues here for oil producers. How are they going to get off their addiction to oil? And how can that process, which will by definition be painful, I mean, Nigeria has to provide other sources of revenue. So there was that practical question. Secondly, he rightly said, look, a lot of environmental damage has been done. And in important ways, the oil companies are not just complicit, but directly responsible for a big part of that, as is the government. And he said, what we can now see happening in Nigeria and elsewhere, in the face of all of this talk about climate change, is that the big oil companies, the biggest operating in Nigeria, incidentally, is Shell, is beginning to sell up its acreage, sell up its oil concessions, sometimes to Chinese, sometimes to wealthy Nigerians. And this oil commission said, but wait a second, where does the liability reside for all of this damage that's happened? And shouldn't we be thinking about reparations? And wouldn't those reparations provide some of the money for a country like Nigeria to transition to a low carbon, carbon net zero economy? So that's where this oil commission came from. So it was in one level triggered by the climate change debate, of course, It was triggered also by the conflicts I've described and so on. And there's a number of local Nigerian issues there, but they speak to other parts of the world too that have similar problems, of how you can link the responsibility of the past in regard to the environment with the really difficult challenges of weaning countries like Nigeria off of oil. So that's what that oil commission is trying to do. And It's complicated because you can probably quite imagine that a lot of people in government in Nigeria don't want this to happen. They say, look, we're a poor country still. They may be quite progressive politically, but they say, wait a second, we're still a poor country. And right now, oil and gas is $110 a barrel. Are you telling me, Michael, that we should just walk away from that? Are you serious? So you can begin to see the tensions around that. And of course, 
if Nigeria is making a lot of money at $110 a barrel, let me tell you, Shell and Exxon and Chevron are also making a lot of money. Their last quarter profits were extraordinary. BP, Chevron made an enormous amount of money, in part because, of course, the Russia question and the disruption of oil and gas there. So one answer to your question then is thinking in that way if we're talking about oil producers. But the larger issue, of course, is that other things have to happen among those countries like the United States, like China, which account for so much of carbon emissions, like India. Things have to happen there too in order to, in some sense, correct the problem if part of the problem is getting off of oil. And that raises a whole different set of questions, of course. Yes, there are a lot of questions. And one thing that you have mentioned a couple of times already is, of course, now the current situation with the war in Ukraine with Russia. And that has, of course, impacted oil prices and oil accessibility. Would you like to develop that a little bit? I sort of pointed a bit in this direction by talking about the immediate challenge in terms of carbon emissions and climate change. Which you'll recall, we had an important multilateral meeting at the end of 2021, COP26, it was called in Glasgow. And it was, uh, I mean, even if you gave it a, the best interpretation, it was mixed. And what is clear, um, there are some positives there. There was an acknowledgement of the importance of methane and addressing that issue. There were some important things done around carbon trading. But at the end of the day, the thing that, of course, jumped out to all of us, and it's a figure that I just mentioned, is if we're going to actually keep climate below 1.5 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels, if that's going to happen, because if we don't, things look really, really bad. And I live in California where we've already, we're in the midst of a massive drought. We've had these astonishing fires, as you have actually in parts of Sweden here. So the consequences are, are desperate if we exceed that 1.5 degree centigrade above pre-industrial levels. In order for that to happen, to get to carbon net zero, it's going to require, over the next 25 years, close to 50% reduction. So, at that level then, the question becomes, with the best will in the world, if everyone were on board, but they're not on board, for all sorts of reasons. I've just talked about oil producers themselves say, well, wait a second, There's got to be some quid quo pro here. You have to help us adapt to the demands of low carbon emissions. On the other hand, you know, you have development institutions like the World Bank. The World Bank is still a massive funder of coal-based energy production and coal production in general. Why the hell are they doing this? Then we have, of course, the oil companies. Well, in the United States right now, last couple of weeks, been some important legal developments, which is that in Massachusetts, the attorney general brought a case against some oil companies for their deliberate deceit and obfuscation, historically, of the impact of their oil production on carbon emissions. It's a very similar story. We discovered this with the big tobacco companies. The tobacco companies were lying through their teeth about the consequences of smoking. Well, this has now become a legal issue in the United States. What is new and different, and there's a couple of really big cases, is that one in Rhode Island, one in Massachusetts, is that the highest levels of the state courts, courts of appeals, supreme courts in the state, are hearing these cases. Now, it doesn't mean they will be won, but all I'm trying to say then is that a part of the issue about what role are the oil companies prepared to play On the one hand, you have this history of deception. On the other hand, they're not going to walk away from oil prices of $110 a barrel. And yet, on the other hand, there are these legal actions which are trying to hold them accountable for things they have done and continue to do. So at that level, and coming back to your question, I'm, you said, well, what can be done? Well, we talked about the complexities of what can be done in a country like Nigeria. There are, incidentally, all sorts of advocacy groups and social movements that are working on these issues to make government less corrupt, to strengthen the environmental regulations, and so on and so forth. But then there are these other global issues. And those global issues are about powerful actors and what the big carbon emitters 
the US, China in particular, India and so on, are doing and are prepared to do. And don't forget, and this is pretty bleak to be honest with you, when President Biden was elected, he, as you know, made some powerful statements about what he wanted the administration to do with respect to climate change. He hired at the highest levels of government for his climate change group some real progressives, one of which, incidentally, just resigned. And that has come essentially to nothing. Of course, that has to do with the polarization and his very limited working majority that he has. But just to give you an example, it was none other than a senator from a coal-producing state in West Virginia, a Democrat, one of his own party, that essentially brought down the climate change bill. He voted against it because of the basis of his support in the industry in West Virginia. So what I'm trying to say, these sorts of issues that we're swirling around here are so central to your question of, well, what can we do now? It has to happen at all of those levels, and especially in places like the United States and China and India and so on. I'll just say one last thing. One of the positive things that came out of those COP meetings, COP26, was that there's not a shortage of money. It's not like, well, well some people say, well, you know, to get carbon net, third, that will cost about $4 trillion. In actual fact, the commitments have been made. It's not about money in that sense. And it's true, quite true, that those people who say, look, you can't just turn off the oil tap, spigot, and suddenly we can expand, you know, renewables. It will take time. It's going to be complicated. And unfortunately, this comes back to your Russia question. What many governments are now saying is, well, we've got gas. And gas is less polluting, and it's a type of transition fuel. And that will help us get off dirty coal, dirty oil, and transition to renewables. Well, that's not quite true. But either way, then, this question of what's possible, and in the case, then, of the Russia-Ukraine war, and Europe dependence particularly on oil, yes, and especially gas, has, of course, among other things, had a huge impact on oil markets and oil trading. And the net effect of that, and it's probably something that isn't going to disappear anytime soon, is that oil prices are very buoyant. And that's the worst type of incentive, in some sense, for some actors to change. Oil companies, companies that depend on oil revenues, etc., etc. In a sense, the Ukraine issue, whatever else it's raised, political issues about the role of NATO and Putin and God knows what else, it's also flagged for me the complexities of the politics and geopolitics of this sort of transition to a, a low-carbon economy. Is there anything that is close to your heart that you want to add to this whole discussion? It seems to me that one of the things that I've come to realize, and this may be from the vantage point of the United States and what's going on there and the particular significance of the U.S. and what it does and how vis-a-vis sort of post-carbon transitions, one of the things I've come to appreciate is it's going to demand in a way that even people, I think, who are on board with the idea of getting off fossil fuels is the degree to which this necessitates important changes in our behavior. And quite what those changes look like, uh, I don't have any more insight than anyone else, but they're not going to be trivial. They're going to involve a radical change. And I suppose one thing you could say and maybe this is my last point I'll make on this, is that given the urgency of the planetary crisis we're confronting, one thing you might say, and you might conclude from the tragedy of COVID, is that some things changed unbelievably quickly. Now, whether they'll change back is an interesting question, but the degree to which we did all sorts of things in a completely different way. I mean, one of the things academics learn is that why the hell do we have these big conferences? What a carbon footprint. We can now do this in completely different ways. We began to see in COVID by necessity things that seemed either unchangeable or practices that no one would give up. Absolutely we did. Now, of course, I say that in the context of a million people died in the United States. The horror of that and what that exposes about race and class and inequality in that country. But I'm simply saying that what it does disclose is that under some circumstances when they need to, radical changes can happen in our behavior. 
which was my starting point for saying, what's the future going to look like? So in some way, I take heart from that. There's a bitterness to it in a way, but that actually might be some sort of source of, of optimism, that it's just not all running into brick walls. Yeah, I would just leave it at that. Let's talk a little bit about uh, SCAS, where we are right now. You're a fellow here this academic year and will stay associated to SCAS as a long-term fellow. How has your experience been of this environment, the multi-interdisciplinary environment that we have here at SCAS? It's been fantastic, and I'm sure I speak for all the fellows here. It's been a wonderful experience, and how could it not be? I mean, we're in a wonderful location We have all the university resources as I look out the window here. I'm an Africanist. Just 50 meters over the way is one of the best collections, Africanist libraries in the world. How could this not be a fantastic place to be? We, of course, interact with academic and other communities, but we're left to our own devices. So that alone, just to think and read and reflect and talk to smart people is itself such an extraordinary and rare thing. And so that's sort of makes SCAS what it is. And, of course, it's, as it should be, international and global. There are people from all over. I will say perhaps something a little provocative, or not provocative, but it maybe needs to be said, which is that I'd like to see fellows here, particularly people like myself with my sorts of interests, who don't look like me, from Nigeria, from India, from Indonesia. I think there's more to be done there to make it even more global than it already is. But the point is, it's a fantastic institution. Christina Garston, the director, has been central to creating that type of ethos. Now, you mentioned the question about inter- or multidisciplinarity. Now, this is intriguing to me because, of course, the talk of interdisciplinarity has been around forever. I remember having conversations when I was a junior faculty person at Berkeley about the need for breaking outside of disciplines Well, you know, these disciplines, politics, economics, these are inheritances of the 19th century. If you'd actually come to Uppsala in 1850, actually the organization would have looked pretty much the same as Berkeley in, in 1979. So they have a longevity. But in the same way we were talking about climate change, changing that is actually not as easy as you might imagine. And I would say, in some respects, thinking about the United States, despite all of this talk about interdisciplinarity and the emergence of interdisciplinary centers or degree-granting programs that don't look like economics, political science, sociology, despite all of those developments which have happened over the last 40-odd years, in some respects, the disciplinary boundaries, I think, are as hard and robust as they've ever been and in some respects have grown even more. It's almost like a turtle shell, you know, like a carapace. So where am I going with this thought? So I think then that in light of that, the challenge for SCAS is to say, well, okay, what are you doing differently? And how does multi and interdisciplinarity operate at SCAS? Well, one level is, of course, the composition of the fellows themselves. And, you know, I've had fantastic conversations with quantum chemists and computational biologists, people wildly out of my realm of confidence. And so the mere fact that the group is curated with that in mind makes for a very interesting and exciting environment. But the second thing, I mean, SCAS also does a different type of curating. So just in the last couple of weeks, under SCAS's um umbrella has been an interdisciplinary conference on women and mental health covers everything from the history of gendered mental illnesses to current research in neurobiology. There was a group working on different types of quantitative approaches to Indo-European languages. Same thing. So on the one hand, it does that, which is, you know, one way of thinking about that is that it legitimates interdisciplinarity. Third thing is, I've been very fortunate in being here to participate in a group of three interdisciplinary seminars that Christina helped organize that links together 
Institutes of Advanced Research from Finland, Turku, Helsinki, Denmark, Aarhus, Oslo, and obviously Sweden. And that's been fantastic because one of the things that has arisen, which I think is absolutely crucial, and again, Christina, I think has led the charge on this, is that you can't just hand wave about interdisciplinarity in the following sense. That the worst thing that a young postdoctoral researcher or a young faculty person could do would be, in fact, in some situations, to embark upon interdisciplinary research. It runs up against these disciplinary boundaries, and it might actually be seen as incredibly risky. I'm raising that because I think one of the things that SCAS is promoting and is deeply sensitive to and runs a whole series of activities and workshops around is that you've got to work on that early mid-career group of talented scholars and, in a sense, provide a legitimation for what they do and encourage them in spite of the obvious risks of sometimes engaging and doing interdisciplinary work that rubs up against these disciplinary boundaries. So I think, for me, that's been really important because it's just simply saying you can't say it's a good thing, it produces better research, it may indeed do. But you have to look at the incentive structure and you have to look at the way in which universities are organized to ensure that talented young people can embark upon that without fear and with the knowledge that it will be acknowledged as being important. And to do that, I think you have to operate at multiple levels. You have to certainly do a lot to work with those scholars, but also, you know, as these interdisciplinary seminars do, you invite along influential administrators and chancellors and provosts, etc., etc., to, in some sense, put it on their radar screen. So I think that's a function maybe that an institution like SCAS, with its both Nordic and Swedish public-facing function, can actually pursue. I use the word legitimation just because I think that's what it is. These things have to be legitimated. And I think that's a crucial thing that SCAS has done and is doing. Thank you very much for joining me and our listeners on SCAS Talks. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for a wonderful conversation. It's been a great opportunity to talk all sorts of ideas that are not just about you know, my own very narrow interests. I hope it's been useful and beneficial in some way. Thank you. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This was the second episode in our theme, Development Issues and Human Rights, featuring Michael Watts, class of 63 and Chancellor's Professor of Geography and Co-Director of Development Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. He was Fellow in Residence at SCAS during the academic year of 2021-2022 and remains associated to SCAS by serving as a non-resident long-term fellow for programs on the political economy of development and development policy. We have talked about the oil industry in Nigeria and related aspects. We got to know more about Michael Watt's book Black Gold, which he published together with photographer Ed Kashi. You can read more about and more importantly see Ed Kashi's work on his website edkashi.com. The film clip that we listen to comes from Julie Winokol's documentary called Curse of the Black Gold which is available on YouTube. In the previous episode in our theme, Development Issues and Human Rights, we learned more about the complexity and contradictions of human rights from Michael Goodhart, Professor of Political Science and of Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. This was episode number 36. If you're interested in Africa, you might also want to listen to episodes 14, 18 and 21. In episode 14, Andreas Eckert talks about the labor market in post-colonial Africa. And in episode 18, Stephanie Wynne-Jones lets us in on her research on urban ecologies in Zanzibar. In episode 21, Rebecca Lee talks about death and memory in modern South Africa. If you have other areas of interest, 
Scus Talks is the perfect podcast for you. Apart from development issues and human rights, we are currently also featuring episodes on gender, Latin America, and also genetics and evolution. Previously, we have also covered the coronavirus pandemic, the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa, life in outer space, life science, infrastructures in Asia, citizen and state relations. The variety of themes reflects the multi and interdisciplinary research environment at SCAS, with fellows from many different disciplines. And we even have two episodes on interdisciplinarity itself, recorded and produced when the workshop Beyond Advanced Studies, Interdisciplinary Theory and Research Careers was held at SCAS in November 2021. SCAS Talks is available on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify and most podcast apps. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. And as always, we are very happy if you can recommend SCAS Talks to your colleagues and friends. I would like to thank Michael Watts once again for meeting me in the SCAS studio to talk to me. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Bye for now.